Well, good morning. Good to see you here. Welcome. Uh, thanks again for worshiping with us. Hey, can we just really quickly give a hand for the band? They do such a great job. They've had a little bit of a crazy morning with some tech issues, but they come out here and they give their best to God and before you. We're so grateful for them. Hey, my name is Preston. As Scott told you guys uh, earlier in hosting, I'm the student pastor here. Uh, I have the honor and privilege of being able to bring the word this morning. Um, I did this in first service. I want to I do it again in second service. I think it's only right. Um, I think together we should uh, go to God in prayer this morning before we jump in together because um, I'm not sure if many of you know, many, I'm sure you do, but over two days ago in the middle of the night, you know, we had some incredibly bad tornadoes and weather come through a little bit of the Midwest. It went through Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, and it just kind of ravaged these communities. If you saw the pictures from it, I'm sure you've seen just how entire towns were blown up and there was nothing left. And I, I think about those people who are hurting right now in the middle of a holiday season, a Christmas season that just last week were preparing to get their gifts together, calling family to come over to uh, kind of have those, those Christmas season together. And they were met with no home now nothing and just in turmoil hurting and I just want us as the body of believers at Forest Park to just take a, a couple seconds here and I just want to pray together for these people who have lost what seems like everything so let's pray together Father thank you for your grace and your mercy God um, and just your provision um, God there were lives that were lost in the midst of this terrible storm there were families that lost everything lost homes lost uh, prized possessions, even lost loved ones, I'm sure, God. There's a lot of hurt in these communities right now. There's a lot of worry. There's a lot of what ifs, what's going to happen now. And God, in the midst of that, I pray that your church and these surrounding areas, God, would be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, that they would come alongside and help rebuild, help provide, help shelter, help pray for, help love on these people who are just in the midst of hurt and heartbreak. I also pray for your spirit to come and engulf them with peace a peace that surpasses all understanding that doesn't make sense, God, because we celebrate in the season you coming as our Prince of Peace, God. We're asking for you to engulf them and surround them with your peace that doesn't make sense and to lean on you and lean on others in this time. We pray for restoration. We pray for help. We pray for healing. We pray for service to come their way. And we pray most of all that you would intervene and show up as only you can do. We pray this in your name. Amen. Alrighty, so, um, you know, again, we are in our Christmas table series. This is week two of our three-week series, and Pastor Scott brought the message last week, and the more I was thinking about it throughout the week, I thought, man, Pastor Scott's message last week, if you didn't hear it, really go back to YouTube, go back and check it out, listen to it. It's a really great message because to me, it encapsulates almost everything we believe here at Forest Park Church. What kind of church are we some of you, this may be your first time, second time, and you're still trying to figure out who we are as a church. Man, go listen to that message because I'm telling you, everything Scott talked about in that message really encapsulate our hearts from staff and volunteers to you. Like, this is the kind of place we want to be. He talked about the, the traditions of the day, right? If there was a meal or a dinner or a feast of that time, that there were certain seats at the table that were for, for, for the highest esteemed people of the time and then there were low seats at the table for you kind of got the invite but you just barely made it so you can take the low seat while the better people take the high seat and he talked about how Jesus came in and tore all those barriers down in those social constructs and he basically said in God's kingdom there is no better or worse and Scott's point I want to put on the screen really quick his last point was the Christmas table 
everyone is welcome because everyone is equal. That in God's house, at God's table, in God's kingdom, there is no you're better than me or I'm better than you. It is simply at the table that Christ has created, we are all equal and we are all welcome. And I love it because that truly shows the acceptance that Jesus has for us, doesn't it? That no matter where you're from, what you did, or who you are, you are welcome at his table. And we love it. We love to say, man, God, that is so great. This is a great truth. God accepts me and loves me just as I am. And I've talked about this in my last message in our identity series, that so often we hear things like that. We say, God, that is so wonderful that you love me that way. But when it comes to living with other people, we don't want to have to show that love or show that acceptance to other people in our life. We want to pass. And so what I want to do today is I want to take that principle, everyone is welcome and everyone is equal at Christ's table, take that principle and flesh it out. How can you and me and everybody in here, everyone watching online, become that for other people? If you looked at surveys or even if, hey, you go to Walmart and take a survey yourself, I guarantee you if you ask anyone who does not come to church or does not consider themselves a follower of Christ right now, what's one word you would describe the church as? One of the main words you would probably get back consistently is judgmental. Judgmental. It, it, it would be, and I think there's some reasons to rightfully believe that, but one of the things that the church has to be is an accepting community. An accepting community. And you may be wondering, Preston, do we really need to accept others? Is there not some limitations? Well, let's look at what Paul says in Romans 15 really quickly. Paul says this, Therefore, Accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Here's a quick Bible study tip for you. Let me pick up my paper really quickly. A quick Bible study tip for you. Anytime you see the word therefore in a sentence, you have to ask yourself the question, what is the therefore therefore? It, it, it oftentimes connects two ideas and you need to understand what's before it to understand what you're reading. Therefore, if you look at the first, four, the first six verses of Romans 15, this is what Paul says. He says, you know, we as the church need to be people who humble ourselves and put the needs of others before our own needs. And then he says the reason we should do this is because Christ modeled this behavior for us. Christ came down not to be served but to serve others. Christ didn't come and live on this earth and demand that you worship him, demand that you follow him, demand that he be in the best seat in the house, the best bed, the best food. He came in and said, I'm here to serve others. Then Paul says, therefore, since Christ has demonstrated this example for us, we should accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Did you know that you are never more like Jesus than when you truly serve other people? You are never more like Christ than when you choose to serve others. That, in a lot of ways, is what has encapsulated who Christ was in the New Testament, a servant to all people. And so for the church, we need to become servants, and we need to become a community that is accepting of all people. And so we're going to look at a story today that kind of shows three ways that the church, and by the church I mean you and me, not just the staff and the pastors here, but you and I can become accepting to people as Christ was to us. But before we do that, I have to make an aside because I know how people think and I know how people can misconstrue. I want to make sure we're on the same page because I'll be talking about acceptance a lot today and I want to make sure we truly know what I mean when I say we should accept other people. Uh, first and foremost, though, I want to remind you that gospel-centered community doesn't demand from others, but it seeks to become to others what Christ is for them. 
Meaning we don't demand that others accept us. We say, I'm going to accept others and put their needs above my own. We don't walk into church and say, no one encouraged me today. But we're going to walk into church and say, who can I encourage today? This idea of putting our needs, our wants, our desires on the back burner for the purpose of the gospel, for the lifting up of Christ, and for the healing of the community. This is what gospel-centered community is. It does not demand but becomes for others what Christ is for them. So that leads to this. This is what we need to know about acceptance today. Acceptance does not mean approval. Because it's easy to get the two confused. To think that simply because I accept someone means I approve of everything they do. In fact, I don't have to really flesh this out too much for you if you, you have kids in the room, do I? You truly love and accept your son as he is. Love him. But that does not mean you approve of all the crazy stuff he does throughout the week. When he's tearing your walls off, when he's jumping off of high places he shouldn't jump off of, you're not approving of everything he does. But yet you still love and accept your son fully as he is. The reality is we can 100% accept people without 100% approving of everything they do in their life. How do I know this? Because this is the example Christ shows for us. He shows this in John 8. If you're familiar with the story of the woman caught in adultery. This woman is caught in adultery and she is surrounded by a ring of religious leaders. And the law demands that if you're caught in adultery that you would be stoned to death. So these religious leaders come around with stones ready to kill this woman for committing adultery. Christ enters the scene and he says, the person without sin cast the first stone. You know this story, I'm sure. They all drop their stones. All the religious leaders walk away in defeat. What does Christ do? Christ walks up to the woman and he says, woman, where are your condemners? Neither do I condemn you anymore. There's no condemnation for you. I do not condemn you. But the last thing he says to her is so important for us to get. He says, I don't condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. He didn't say, I don't condemn you. Just keep doing what you're doing, man. It's fine. No problem. You can do whatever you want. Just know that you're not condemned. No, Christ says, you were no longer condemned. You were fully accepted as you are. Now go and live in acceptance. Live differently. Here's the truth. Love does not say, I approve of everything you do. Love says, I accept you in spite of what you do. Truly, it is easy to love people who do everything the way we think it should be done. But loving people in spite of their mistakes, in spite of their shortcomings, in spite of what they may do to us, that is what love is in the Bible. It's not saying I approve of everything you do. Love says I love you in spite of what you do. So with that being said, we're going to jump into our text for today. Um, when I think about acceptance and what that means and what that looks like, I think of one story that comes to mind. That's the story of the prodigal son. I'm sure many of you know it. Many of you have probably heard it 50 million different ways and 50 million different times from 50 million different preachers. But we're going to go through 50 million and one today. So you can mark it off as another time you've heard it. I want to encourage you, and I said this in the first service. Um, I'll say it again. It, as long as I kind of am up here, you'll kind of get used and kind of know how I, I work when I'm preaching. Um, I really do want to encourage you. I'm not putting the story on the screen. I, I really do want to encourage you as we read this. I'm giving you like 30 seconds. You're like, get out your phone. 
seriously, like open the Bible app. If you are old school and you have a Bible on you, it's okay. Open it up, knock the dust off, turn to Luke 15. Because one of the things that's so important is that you read along as we go through it so you see the word of God come to life. Because I could literally tell you any story I want in the next 20 minutes and you would believe it if you don't see it and compare it to what the story really says. So seriously, take out your phone. It's okay. I'm not going to judge you. Take out your Bible. We're going to read the prodigal son story together because it's so important that you see what the word of God has to say today. Luke 15, verses 11 through 32, the prodigal son story says this. And he, Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took the journey into a far country. And there he squandered the property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I sit here, and I'm hungry. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put the ring on his hand and and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what are these things meaning? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look at these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son... You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. A great, beautiful story that has so much to unpack, and you can go a hundred different ways with this. I'm sure you've heard it a hundred different ways. Today when we talk about acceptance, I could give you a hundred different practical ways that you can become accepting of others, but I want to limit it to three based on this story. There are three principles from the story that can really help us accept others as Christ accepts us. And they stem from the three characters in the story, the father, the son, and the prodigal. And we're going to look at each one of them and what they teach us about acceptance. And in an unconventional way, we're going to start at the end. We're going to start with the older brother. The older brother was your typical good kid. 
Some of you may not know what that means or what that looks like because both your kids were crazy. But this father had two sons and his older brother, his older son, was the good kid. You see, I put that in quotations. He was the one who did everything his daddy told him to do. He worked hard. He never complained. He always showed up on time. He always worked as long as he had to. And he, when his dad said, do this, he never backtalked. I mean, he was that nice, good child that would sit in church like this for two hours and be fine. And then he had his younger brother, right? The one who said, dude, give me my share of the property. I want to go party. I want to go have fun. I want to spend all this money, live a lavish lifestyle. I don't want anything to do with you, Dad. I just want your possessions. He ran away. He finally got to the end of himself and finally said, I should go back home and work for my dad. And when he came back home, he was met with a party, celebrations, good food. And the older brother sits there and thinks, what about me? What about me? I think a lot of us ask ourselves that question a lot. What about me? Here's the truth. Number one, acceptance has a high view of grace. If we are to accept others as Christ accepted us, we have to have a high view of grace. What does a high view of grace look like? I'll tell you what it isn't. The brother was filled with bitterness and anger towards his brother. And he had a low view of grace. See, for someone like the older brother, grace was nothing but a nice add-on to his already good behavior. While the bad people got judgment and punishment, good people got a little bit of grace from God. And that's how the older brother saw grace, as just a nice add-on to his already good behavior. Here's what I think we all, we all have to understand about God's grace and about Christmas, too. You know, Jesus came to earth to die for you and for me. It's the message of Christmas. But I need us to understand one thing that's going to revolutionize how you read the Bible and understand God, if you truly believe it. Jesus did not come and die to make bad people good. Jesus came and died to make dead people alive. And there is a huge difference between making bad people good and making dead people come to life. In the brother's mind, there was only two types of people. There were bad people, and there were good people. In God's kingdom, there are two types of people. People dead, and people alive in Christ. And Christ did not come to make you morally good. Christ came to give you life, and life more full, and life more abundant, and life more full of joy. And the grace of God comes and transforms us and brings us out of our sin into life, into relationship with God, so that we can experience those things. A high view of grace celebrates. If you look at Luke 15, there are three parables in the story. The first parable, the parable of the lost sheep. And the shepherd loses his sheep. He finds his sheep. When he finds his sheep, he rejoices. Thank God I found my sheep. Second story, a woman loses a coin, the parable of a lost coin. And, and she looks everywhere, tears her house to ruins trying to find this precious coin. She finally founds it and she rejoices. I found the lost coin. And then you get to the parable of the prodigal son, a lost son who comes back home and the father rejoices. The one common theme in all three of those parables, when a lost person or lost thing is found and brought to life, there is an attitude of rejoicing. Truly a high view of grace shows itself in a rejoicing heart. Let me ask you this question. What would you do or how would you act if God blessed others in your life? That's probably a bad question, right? Because if I asked you if you're 
your, God blessed your brother or God blessed your father or God blessed your coworker that you get along with, you would say, I would rejoice. Thank God that God came and intervened and re- we can rejoice that he did something in his life. But let me ask you this question. What would your attitude be? You don't have to answer out loud. And I know that we can say, well, I would rejoice. Answer honestly in your heart. If God blessed the very person that hurt you the most and is still hurting you, what if God blessed your enemies and the person that had brought you the most trauma, the most pain, the most hurt when you were a child, 20 years later is now redeemed and found new in Christ and God has his blessing on him and he gives him full life of peace and joy. Would your attitude be one of rejoicing or would it be one of questioning? Well, did, did, did he really give his life to Jesus? Did, I mean, is he just pulling my leg I mean, can this guy really be redeemed after all they've done to me? The truth is we see this play out in John 9. John 9 is the story of Jesus healing a blind man. This man was blind from birth. Jesus comes on the scene and heals this man. The ironic part is not that he healed the man. The ironic part is what happens after. The religious leaders of the day come and hear the miracle. They come to this area and they go and start interrogating the people. They go to the man's mother and father. They say, okay. This is my version of the Bible. This is not ESV or NIV. This is Preston's version. All right, let's be honest here. Your son says he can see now. Was he really blind at birth or was this a hoax that you were using to get money? Like, let's be honest. Like, was, this, was he really blind? The parents say, dude, he was blind. Blind from birth. So they go and interrogate the guy. They say, let's be honest. Like, you can drop the facade. Let's, let's go over here. Like, tell me the truth. Did God really do these things? Are you really healed? Did you really have a change of heart? And the man says something I think is so profound. He says, I don't know all the answers to your questions, but one thing I do know is that I was once blind and now I can see. And that a man named Jesus healed me. When God moves oftentimes in people's lives that we feel like don't deserve it, we want to integrate. Do you really, did you really change? Have you really put the bottle down? Have you really stopped having that anger issue? We often want to question the move of God when God's saying, who's questioning who who I can touch and who I can't? I can bless and redeem whoever I see fit. And oftentimes the thing that humbles me is telling myself, Preston, if he can redeem you, he can redeem anyone. When I look at my story and my redemption, I believe God can redeem anyone from anything. When it comes to the Christmas table, uh, and when I say Christmas table in this message, you can take it one of two ways. You can mean literally your Christmas table where your family will gather in a couple of weeks. Or you can mean, and, and what I think is better for you to take it in context of, is your circle of life. Who you allow in your circle, who you don't allow in your circle. Who you interact with, who you're willing not to interact with. When it comes to the Christmas table, um, sometimes it's not so much that we won't invite others to our table but that will we'll decline invitations to their table. Look at what verse 28 says about the older brother. It said, but he, the brother, was angry and refused to go in. His brother had come home, had been redeemed and welcomed home by the father. They were throwing a huge party. And the father and the servants say, come on in. And the brother said, I'm not going in. I don't want to see him. I don't want to celebrate. This dude's made mistakes. I'm not going to rejoice for anything. He had bitterness in his heart. Sometimes there's people in our life that it's not so much that we're not inviting them to our table. It's that we're refusing to be a part of their table. 
And Jesus never once was the type of person to turn down an opportunity to do miraculous through invitations. So when we look at this, we see that as the people of God, we are called to accept others. And that means we have to get in our minds and our hearts a high view of grace. That grace can redeem and transform anyone. There's a great quote from Bob Goff that I'll put on the screen. He says this. Jesus spent his whole life engaging with the people most of us spend our whole lives trying to avoid. That there are people in your life. Let's be honest. I'm going to be honest as the pastor. There are people in my life that if they walked into my home, they walked into my life, they sat at my table. I may let them sit there, but it's going to be very awkward and very hard for me to get through the meal. There is somebody or some type of group in your life that if they walked in your house this Christmas, they walked into your life at work, it would make you tense up. But Jesus spent his whole life engaging with the people that we spend our whole lives trying to avoid. I don't know who that is for you. For some of you who are super political, that's the other side of the political spectrum for you. For some people, that's the people who caused you trauma and abused you as a child. For some of us, it's just that husband that we just finalized the paperwork for and we don't want to ever see him again. It's different for all of us, but who are you trying to avoid? Be honest with yourself. So we must accept people when we have a high view of grace. That was the brother's problem. He had a low view of grace. That leads to point number two. If we are going to accept people, it often has to start when we start accepting ourselves. This was the prodigal son's issue. That he could not accept himself. And here's the deal. If we were honest, the older brother probably had too high of a view of himself. And the younger brother, the prodigal, probably had too low of a view of himself. Look at what he says in verse 19. He is saying, uh, when I go tomorrow to come back to my father's house, this is what I will say to my father. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. There is this thing in your life and my life and everyone's life that if you do not deal with it, it will completely wreck and destroy and cripple your life. And it's not just spiritually. Sure, it'll, it'll destroy your spiritual life, but it will destroy your relational life. It will destroy your mental life. It will destroy your emotional life. It will even destroy your physical life. If you do not treat this thing, it will destroy you. And that is shame. You have to deal with and address the shame in your heart. The truth is we all have shame. I have shame from things I've done in the past, things I might have done yesterday, things I might have done in the last 10 seconds. And, you know, we have to deal with our shame. The prodigal son had a lot of shame that he had not worked through. Dr. Rick Hansen, who is a psychologist who's been working with the effects of guilt and shame on people for the last couple of decades, makes a clear distinction between guilt and shame that I think it's so important that we understand today because I'm going to talk about how do we deal with our shame, and I want to make sure we're clear on it. He puts it very, very simply in a way I think can really be easy to understand. He says, guilt says, I did something bad, and I know it. Shame says, I am something bad. And they know it. You hear the difference? The prodigal son said, did not just say, I did some bad things. The prodigal son said, I am those bad things. And when you choose to start defining yourself by your reputation, by your 
actions, by your mistakes, you will have nothing but shame that fills your heart and your mind. Guilt says, I did something bad, I know it. Shame says, I am something bad, and they know it too. They know how bad I am. The thing is, Dr. Rick Hansen provides a chart I want to show you. It, it, it can really help us understand how shame plays itself out in our lives. Here's the chart. It, it, it starts with roots. Shame always has roots in something. The roots of shame are oftentimes, as he describes, humiliation or insecurity. Humiliation could be something as simple as honestly, like when I was in second grade, I wet myself in class and everyone laughed at me. Like that was, for you, an embarrassing moment, humiliation that could stick with you for the rest of your life. Or insecurities about things you've already believed about yourself before you did anything. Some people in here believe I'm not worthy of love, that I, I, I'm not a person who's worthy to receive love from anyone. Insecurities. These are the roots of your shame. And if not dealt with, they'll start to produce actual shame things that come out of you, such as I am statements. I am unworthy. I am an addict. I am an alcoholic. I am financially erect. I am a divorcee. I am a bad parent. I am whatever you want to fill in the blank with. And they lead to assumptions. Let's take, for example, the woman who grows up or the man who grows up believing I'm not worthy of love. Insecurities. When they get married, and if they get a divorce, what will they tell themselves? Assumptions. That's right. I was never, see, I was never worthy of love. This person couldn't stick with me through all my issues. I was never worthy of love. That's why if you see families like a mother and father uh, move to a town where neither of them are from, and they get a divorce, and the father has a job in the area, nine times out of ten, what does the wife do? Moves out of there. They get out because there's too much shame and accompanying with that area. And if shame's not dealt with, it will lead to shoots, which is, you can just think of the tree analogy, leaves, branches. So shoots are social anxiety and social control. Social anxiety is what the prodigal son dealt with. Social anxiety says, my shame is so inside of me that I will remove myself from places and people that make me feel shameful. They'll remove themselves from situations. They'll remove themselves from people groups. They'll remove themselves from environments that reiterate to them how much shame they should have. It leads to social anxiety. But on the other end of the spectrum, it can also lead to social control. Social control are the people who try to manipulate their environments to cover their shame. Give you an example. If you're bad financially off and you're on the rocks financially, some people may surround themselves with people who are great financially and call them their friend group, so that when you look at them in that group of financially stable people, you think, well, they must be financially stable. Or you surround yourself with great um, uh, marriage people who are in marriage, so you have this couples group, and they're all, marriages are great, even though yours is falling apart. You want to put on the social control facade of, my marriage is good too, so that people will believe that you don't have those issues. So shame can play itself out in a number of ways in our lives if we're not careful. And we must deal with it. It is something that we have to deal with if we are going to learn to accept people as they are. You can't accept someone if you haven't accepted yourself. You can't truly love someone if you haven't truly learned to love yourself. Here's the most important part of the message today. Truly. I mean, if, if you want to just tune in for 30 seconds, give me 30 seconds, then go back to sleep. That's fine. I don't care. But here's the most important part of the message I need all of us to hear today, myself, the people watching online. That the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what Christ did for you, 
is that in Christ, you are no longer defined by your past. You're no longer defined by your present, and you're no longer defined by your future. You are in Christ, a child of God, fully loved, fully accepted, fully chosen. You are his possession, and you are the pride of the Father. That the Father would look at you and say, my son, my daughter, you are mine. Even with all the mess, even with all the insecurities, even with all the shame, even with all the mistake, Christ would look at you and say, in me, you are my pride, you are my possession, you are my child, and you are fully loved and accepted right where you are. And that is the beauty of the gospel message, that you are no longer defined by what you did or what you do. You are defined by what Christ has done for you. That is the beauty of the gospel. The truth is, we can't just say shame can kill us and destroy our lives. It'd be helpful, Preston, if you would actually show me how I can deal with my shame a little bit. Uh, Brene Brown, who is a professor at the University of Houston and at the University of Texas in Austin, she is a professor, been a professor, and worked in the sociology field for about 20 years dealing with the effects shame has on people. She gives a very good tidbit. I could give you 100 things to do with your shame, but I'm not clinically licensed. I don't know. I'm just referring you to people who do know. One of the things I found in my studies that I thought was really interesting is what she said. She said, shame cannot survive being spoken. It cannot survive empathy. If empathy and acceptance can replace fear and distrust, then progress can be made. Progress can be made when we choose to replace our fear and distrust with empathy and acceptance. You have to find a healthy group and a healthy community that can come around you and support you and love you and accept you to the point where you can begin to trust and you can begin to have empathy. Until then, you will struggle. You have to surround yourself with people who love you and support you. That's a big part of dealing with your shame, finding that group that accepts you just as you are. Here's why that's so important for us. Because the church should be that place for the people who are dealing with shame. But oftentimes we're not. Oftentimes we drop the ball. Oftentimes we don't do those things. And the truth is, I, I truly believe that if the church would be the church and heal and accept and love the people who come through our doors, we wouldn't have what's going on in our country right now. We wouldn't have churches losing half capacity. We wouldn't have people running out of the church like our youth are who don't want anything to do with church anymore. Why? Because they would feel accepted and loved and cared for while they're here. The truth is... We wouldn't have to worry about a lot of the issues we worry about with church if we would all come into the door and say, it's not about me. For the next two hours while I'm here, it's not about me. It's not about how much I like the message. It's not about how much I like the music. It's not about what I agree with, what I don't agree with. It's about the person in front of me and being to them what Christ was for me. Seeing a person that you haven't talked to or maybe never talked to before and saying, how was your week? Is anything go on? Can I pray for you? Is there anything that you need? Can I help? Can I serve? Is there something you're dealing with that maybe I can help find you someone that could help you that's more qualified than I am? There is a place for you to not treat church and this little one-hour cool service with bright lights that we put on as a little holy huddle that you check off on your list every Sunday to make yourself feel good. This is not a place for you to come, get your coffee, sit, say good job, Preston, and go home. Stop. 
slow down, encourage, look who's in the lobby, look who's in adventure. Don't rush home, don't rush here. Take time to know the people in here. Take time to hear their story. Take time to encourage them. Take time to love them because when we all would commit to that, people would drive for hours just to be a part of what's going on here. But oftentimes people come into cold faces, cold shoulders, sit down by themselves, leave without a word spoken to them, and feel like, what was that for? I can just turn on Facebook and watch something else. We have to learn to be the church who is an accepting, loving, healing community that Christ has called us to be. I'm not telling you to be a counselor. I'm not telling you to be, uh, fix everyone's mental health issues. I'm just telling you to listen, love, pray with, and support in any way that you can. Because that is what we are called to do. That is how we choose to accept others, by being to them what Christ was for us. But we cannot accept others truly until we learn to accept ourselves first. So the the older brother had to have a high view of grace to understand how to accept others. The prodigal son had to understand how to accept himself before he could accept others. And then lastly, the father, his acceptance never gave up. True acceptance never gives up on others. It doesn't. Here's the reality, and I've been this person to my parents for a season when I was a teenager, and I have people in my life that are like this with me now, and I think it's important we understand this today. There are some people that are not a part of your life right now, not at your Christmas dinner this year, not because you didn't want them there, not because you didn't send the invite, but because they chose to decline and deny and walk away. And as much as that may pain you, and, I'm no, and I know it does, here's what we have to understand. We must continue to persevere in prayer for them and still accept them, even when they want nothing to do with us. That is the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the church, that we accept people even when they want nothing to do with what we're doing here on stage. They want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with Jesus. They want nothing to do with our families. And yet we still say to them, invitation's still open. We'd love to have you. Arms open. Here's something that the father did I think is so, so important for us to see in verse 20. And he, the prodigal son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. The, the son was walking towards the house. But even before he could get to the door, the father was already waiting. The father was already watching and hoping that he would, his son would come home today. And he saw him from ways off. And he said, I'm going out there to greet my son. And he embraced him. He kissed him. He loved him. He accepted him. And here's the great part. And it's where I fall short a lot of times. When those people finally do come back around, when those people finally do say, yes, I'll come to the party, yes, I'll come and get coffee with you, yes, I'll come back to church, we oftentimes want to say, okay, arms open, but let's talk about this. Like, what, what, what were you doing, dude? Like, what have you been doing for the last two years? Why haven't you been here? I've been inviting you. You haven't been returning my phone calls. What's going on? Did I do something to do you? Do you have a problem with me? Is there a real issue going on here? Father didn't integrate. The father didn't ask questions. The father didn't care to an extent what the son had been doing or if the son was mad at him for the last however so often he was gone. All the father cared about is he's here. He's back home. He's with me. He is now returned and we can celebrate. Some of us have given up on some people this past year. To be quite frank, there's some people that I have to repent of and say I've maybe given up on them sometimes. 
But true acceptance does not give up on people. And here's why. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The truth about the prodigal son's story is that it's very representative of you and I's relationship with God. That we go astray, that we don't want anything to do with the Father. We just want God's blessings. We don't want God. We use his possessions to make us feel better. And we do whatever we want, and then we hang our heads in shame as we walk back to the Father. Here's the great news, is that if you're in here and you do not care anything about what I'm saying, church ain't for you, Jesus ain't for you, you're just doing this because it's Christmas time and it's like your one time a year to come, hey, no shame. You don't care. Here's the beauty of Jesus. Even while you wanted nothing to do with God, God still looked at you and said, I want to die for that one. I want to die for that one. That there's nothing you can do, nothing you can say, no lack of faith, no insecurities, no apathy, no rebellion that could ever tell God he wasn't worth dying for. She wasn't worth dying for. Christ's love is bigger, wider, and not dependent on how you behave. Even while we were still sinners, Christ looked at us and said, I want to die for him. I want to die for her. They are my child. And the father had his arms open, ready to receive his son. He never gave up. He probably waited day and night. I'm sure if they had iPhones back then, he would have been calling and texting them every day. The truth is, some of us may have given up on some people in our life that we just kind of like, I've tried. I've stuck out invitations. I've prayed for nothing, ghost, nothing in return. Don't give up on people. God doesn't give up on us. And by God's grace, one day they will return home. And when they return home, when they take your invitation, do not meet them with judgment. Don't meet them with questions. Don't meet them with integration. Meet them with grace. And say, so happy you're back home. So happy that you're here. I'd be remiss to not end the message this way as we get ready to go now. The truth is, I talk about some of those people that have been gone astray. And the truth is there are probably some of us in here who are those people right now. That maybe you're using the Christmas season to finally kind of like, man, it's been two and a half years since the pandemic. I really haven't cared about my faith. I really haven't cared about church. I really haven't cared about God in a while. And I'm using the Christmas season to maybe launch myself back into church and see if it's any different, see if it's any better, see if I want to start coming to this church. Maybe I'm new to the area. And I have one thing to say to you guys, man. Our arms at Forest Park are open. There's no judgment. There's no questions. We don't need to know what's going on. We don't, to a certain degree, care what's going on. We are just standing here and saying, the invitation's open. And to be quite frank, it is time to start coming home. It's time to come back to the Father. It's time to come back and say, I'm home. And it feels good to be home. And I promise you here at Forest Park, as far as I can do, as far as Scott can do, as far as any of us can do, We'll do our best to make sure that our community is one of grace and not judgment, one that has its arms open at all times and says at any point you want to turn around and come home. There's a bed waiting. There's a pig ready. We're ready to accept you home just as you are. No questions, just grace. Let's pray. Father, your grace and your mercy are bigger, wider, deeper than I can even comprehend. God, I think about my story, I think about my struggles, and I think about a God who looked at me and said, he is worth dying for. And God, it overwhelms me to a certain degree, and God, even preaching this message, I see in my own heart, my own mind, places that I've fallen short with accepting people. 
God, would you help me be that person for others that you've been for me? Help me to put others first. Help me to put others ahead of my own. God, that I wouldn't come in and seek my own pleasure, my own desires, but I would come in and say, who can I, who can I be Christ for today? God, when it comes to the church, we've messed things up time and time again, but your grace still meets us and is still ready for us to walk into, God. There are people hurting in our community, people scarred by the church. And God, I'm just praying that here at Forest Park, the people who call this place home, that you would direct us and guide us and convict us to be the people who accept people where they're at. No questions, no judgments, no integration, God, but we would just open our arms up and say, whoever you are, whatever you've been through, whatever you are going through, whatever you will go through tomorrow, our arms are open. We want to love you. We want to serve you. We want to accept you just as you are, that we wouldn't think that your grace is beyond certain people, that your grace is not a low view of grace, God, but that we would see that your grace can touch any life because it touched ours, that we would seriously look in the mirror and say, God, what shame am I carrying how can I deal with it? How can I learn to accept myself as you've accepted me so that I can be to others what you were for me? And God, would, for those of us in here that are just waiting for someone, whoever it may be, a child, a brother, a mother, a coworker, someone in the community, God, that we've stuck our hand out and said, come on, come on back. Come to get coffee with me. Let's talk. And they've consistently met us with no, 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 and no. Will we not give up on them? We continue to pursue, continue to chase down, continue to invite, continue to love, even when the answer time and time again is no, God. Help us be perseverant. Help us to love even when it's not easy. And help us show the grace of God in a visible way in this community. I pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, guys, I, um, I have nothing left. Just a couple things, I guess. If you did Angel Tree, I just want to say from us and Marion and the staff, man, thank you. You're ability to reach and love this community is, is greatly appreciated. We love to see you guys do stuff like this. And secondly, because I, I have the mic and I'm a student pastor and can, if you have a 6th to 12th grader, uh, we'd love for them to go to our winter retreat at Camp Kell in February. You can find me. You can find one of my volunteers in the lobby. We'll sign them up. If you have any questions, love to answer any questions. It's going to be a life-changing weekend for our students at Camp Kell in February. And we want your student to go. So if you have any questions, find me or find someone in the lobby. Love you guys. Go enjoy your day.